right, you know what that sound means. I am Dennis Mishmaley with the Bradenton Times podcast and very special guest this week that we're happy to have in here, State Representative Will Robinson. Thanks for joining us, Will. Glad to be here, Dennis. So you guys have been busy. So you've had a 60-day session. You've had a special session. You're going back for another special session. Uh, first thing I want to kind of ask you is a state as big as Florida with the size of the budget we've grown, the economy we've grown, what are the challenges of trying to legislate in 60 days? Part of that seems really antiquated. It, it is a challenge, but I'll compare it to our federal system, which has no such restrictions. And I don't think they have the urgency to get anything done. I mean, we really only have one constitutional requirement every year, and the that's budget, to pass right. a balanced budget. And I kind of joke and I say, well, wouldn't it be great if that was DC's only requirement right. to, to pass a balanced budget? But um, this year we had a second requirement, which was redistricting. But I think we can get everything accomplished. You should see that last week where everything kind of comes together. I know a couple big topics didn't get, didn't get done, and sometimes that happens as part of the legislative process. If something is that important, sometimes it may take a session or two to get the details all worked out. But it also seems like there's a lot of good initiatives that die on the vine just because there's simply not enough time. I mean, like you, you really, when you look at the number of bills filed, when you look at the things that even get to uh, committee, um, it just seems like there's such a small chance for something that's, let's say, not a very big overarching issue, but is good legislation that's that's going to benefit the state. Uh, do lawmakers get frustrated by that? Is there is there, you know, certainly that can happen, but obviously it has to rise to the level of something the speaker, or the president, or the governor really wants, or or it has to go through the normal legislative process. You know, many times it, it's an unknown. Maybe the speaker or the, the chairman doesn't like that idea. And that's the reason it doesn't get across the finish line. Uh, maybe not because we've run out of time. Ah. So so sometimes you may not know exactly why certain ideas don't uh, get across the finish line. Is 60 days enough time, not enough time? Certainly I'm obviously open for that, but uh, we've been having a lot of special sessions. Right. So I actually was joking with a friend of mine, we got to remove the word special uh, from sessions because right. it's no longer special anymore. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So when, when you guys start uh, going up for committees and stuff like that, that's usually like September, October, right? So it depends on the year. Okay. So like this year, they frankly want to get us out for elections. So mm -hmm. we have an early session. It's a January to March session. Okay. So those committee weeks start, like you said, in September. Uh, the next go around will be later. Uh, the, the session will start in March and end in May. So those those sessions, obviously we can't have a, a committee week until we're reelected or elected. So right. those won't happen until probably after Thanksgiving. So it kind of depends. It's usually about six weeks as well. So we have about six weeks of committee. So weeks. one of the things that is always kind of stood out to me as a result of that is that when, so in some ways it kind of is more full-time legislature than, than we sort of, you know, show it, uh, uh, you know, on the surface. Um, and then there's, there's a strong argument. I think that it limits to, so calling it a part-time legislature, uh, the pay is, you know, I think half of what a county commissioner even makes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thirty some thousand. I think it still is twenty nine. I think. Yep. Twenty nine. Um, so you you do probably, or not probably, you definitely limit the kind of people, the no, number of occupations. Uh, you have an overrepresentation of some, let's say, wealthy individuals, uh, business owners, attorneys, especially. Um, and then you have an under or retirees, uh, you have an underrepresentation of people that would say, Hey, I'd love to run for, you know, state office, but 
how in the world would I survive on $30,000 a year? And my job certainly wouldn't allow me to just leave every time there's a special session or for 60 days in a row. Uh, is there an argument that a full-time legislature would maybe increase the amount of representation? I'll, I'll go back to DC. I, I don't know there, if they're more or better represented in terms of their body than, than we are. And I frankly think they're more dysfunctional uh, mm -hmm. than, than we are. So I don't know. I don't know if that is the answer. Is a, is uh, That's a very fair point. Yeah. So I, I don't know what the answer is. Actually, I think we are well represented. It is, it is by the way, the ultimate challenge for me personally, I think probably for most members, is balancing your family time, balancing your other job. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. So I try never to let my clients think that I'm putting politics ahead of their legal concerns. So, but thankfully we have technology and laptops and, and phones and like that. But I, th I do think we have a pretty good diversity, but certainly I'm, I'm all ears on, on that issue because it is, it is somewhat unique, obviously compared to our federal system that we have a structured 60 day session. We only make $29,000 or so a year, you get a per diem, but it is a different setup than what, what happens in DC. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that we gave you a lot of credit for uh, going into the session uh, we were very much in support of the legislation that you managed to get passed in terms of referendums. Um, we'd seen in Manatee County, obviously, and I'm sure that probably had something to do with uh, the legislation that you filed. Um, we'd seen several occasions in which local governments had seemingly with the intent of maybe sliding it under the radar, uh, putting big referendums on tax dollars on, you know, the school district has done it, the county did it, um, where they asked voters in an off election year, uh, you know, in February or March to come out and make a vote on something that's going to, you know, pretty significantly impact people's pocketbooks. And the turnout tends to be abysmal. So you end up having a very small amount of people deciding the issue. And it's often enough when you do that, where let's say, you know, your school district, for example, and one of their referendums had to do with funding that would benefit pay and salary for people that worked within the district. Well, if you're the largest employer in the district, that's 6,000 employees who have a vested interest in voting for it, plus all their family members, plus all their friends uh, that they could rally to, to get out there. And you're going to get a disproportionate type of response. And it would seem like, hey, if we we could put this on in November, but if we wait till March, you know, maybe that's a better chance of passing. Can you talk a little bit about that legislation and, and what it does and why you thought it was important? So we had tackled a, another piece of it, the sales tax piece referendum. So that was a couple of years ago. For some reason, the millage piece fell out. So the bill really targeted millage and some other special taxes that you could not throw them on a special election. It had to be on a general election ballot for just the reasons you men mentioned, Dennis, is to get maximum voter turnout. And if, you, if I could spend a couple minutes about kind of the bill process, this may be interesting to your listeners. So uh, I, I kind of, I came up with the idea really frankly, because both of the counties I represent, Manatee and Sarasota, have these off-year uh, elections that I think, frankly, what you just said, just to pack the polls, just to get their voters in there. Um, and I thought that was bad government. So uh, I came up with an idea. And what's great about the legislature is you have much smarter people than I am that are called bill drafters. So I send them kind of the idea and they came back to me with the actual technical language on the page. I looked at it, uh, made some edits. And then for me, I like to sit down with staff. So I sit down with staff of both Ways and Means and State Affairs staff and just put together um, kind of what the bill would look like. And then I have to find a Senate sponsor. Thankfully, Senator Boyd, uh, my senator, your senator from Manatee, uh, filed it on the Senate side. And an interesting story, most people don't know that, that my, our rules in the legislature in terms of um, sunshine and talking to other members is much different than your county commissioners. We can actually talk to other members right. about legislation. And that may be a different debate for a different time. But um, 
uh, an interesting committee stop. I think it was my second committee stop. I actually talked to the, the most conservative member of the legislature, Anthony Sabatini, and one of the more liberal members of the legislature, Anna Eskamani. They both liked it, loved the bill for different reasons. Anthony liked it for lowering of, of you know, not using taxpayer resources or resources to have to hold that election. Yeah, because they, they were typically running around $300,000 exactly, per, exactly. per election. And Eskimani liked it for uh, maximum voter participation and turnout. So you fast forward to the floor vote, it actually passed with only two no votes uh, on, the, on the House side and zero no votes on the Senate side. So it was actually one of the few election bills that, both, that brought both parties together for different reasons, because it is bad government. You should have the maximum number of people participating for, and to me it's ridiculous to spend $300,000 on an off-year election just to shove something in there. So for me, it was something that I believed in, and, and it hasn't been signed by the governor, so hopefully the governor will sign it uh, somewhere down the road. So interestingly, we saw a veto uh, this week that that I thought was really, really uh, good policy um, on the solar bill. Uh, that was something that you voted in favor of. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you were in favor of it and uh, what you think of the, the veto response? Sure. I was actually kidding with uh, the bill sponsor about this. Welcome to the veto club. I've actually had a bill vetoed by mm -hmm. Governor DeSantis. It was, oh, really? It was a lottery bill. We could talk about that if you want. But um, uh, this this is a, it's a very technical issue, but it's called net metering which would mm -hmm. allow um, those that have solar panels to sell their extra solar energy back to the utility company. And the concern that we had that we hoped the bill would address is because you're obviously, um, if that's happening, you're obviously having an expense side from folks that don't have solar panels. So what's our view is that their, their energy costs could go up because that offset or those credits are having to be offset somewhere. So there was a glide path to allow those credits to go down over time because we feel that more and more people are going to get solar. So they're going to be selling more and more of this energy back to the power company and those that don't have solar. But with that, if that bill would have stood, the chance of more and more people getting solar would have drastically fell because the expense of it, it's already, it's already a difficult thing to recover. You have to be, in most cases, you have to be relatively wealthy in order to afford it for it to make sense because of the longer payoff on it. Uh, had that bill passed, that would have really, really disincentivized, which was why it seemed apparent that there was a lot of lobbying from FPL and some other companies in terms of trying to shut that down. There, there probably would have been that result. Interestingly, and this is why it's always important to contact the governor's office. I think I read that the governor got about 14,000 emails or letters or calls against the bill and mm -hmm. 10 for it. So not that, not that the governor is necessarily weighing numbers like that, but that's important to any politician sure. when they see an outcry uh, for that. So uh, the governor vetoed the bill. Um, he was pretty clear that he thought that in our inflationary times that this is something that uh, the taxpayer should not have to uh, worry about. And, and if mm -hmm. they want to lower their energy costs this way, uh, and even though it may offset in some other areas, we can address that down the road. So I was comfortable with his veto. And if we have to fix the legislation to make it more palatable to the governor's office, I'm all for that. Okay. Um, one of the bills that you went against your party with this year was the Parental Rights and Education Act. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, there was, I mean, I don't know if there's a state that's more ground zero for the culture war right now than Florida. Um, I feel like there's a fair amount of theater on both sides with both of it. Um, and I feel like some of the things, so I wrote a column on that bill and it titled the column and I got, you know, lambasted for it was relax, you can say gay. Um, because I thought it was unfairly 
positioned by the left to, to say, oh, well, you can't say this, you can't say this, somebody can't talk about what they did over the weekend, uh, all of which was not true. You know, it's a seven-page bill. It's very brief. Uh, it's very easy to understand. Um, that said, so I, I felt like, okay, the drama that we're getting in response to it is very overwrought uh, and not accurate. There's a lot of propaganda involved. Um, that said, it did seem like clumsy legislation. It seemed sometimes like uh, there was so much vagueness to it that, and, and the lawsuit component was was problematic in that you looked and you said, well, well, look, if they can file suit based on this and so much of this is subjective, then what does something like age appropriate mean? So it seemed very ham-fisted in that sense. Um, so I kind of had both sides of it. Like, yeah, I think it's bad legislation, but no, it's not what it's me made out to be. Did you have a similar take or? Exactly the reason that I voted against it. Okay. What she outlined. And if it had started for the reason that my view that, that, that the bill was drafted, I would have voted for it. It really came out of Leon County where there was a transition, a student going through a transition program within that district and they didn't notify their parent. And they're actually calling the student a different pronoun than when the parent called. I found that egregious. A parent yes. should obviously have knowledge that their, their, their child is going through that. Unfortunately, the bill kind of developed into something else. And you mentioned exactly the problem I had with it, the lack of definitions. The word instruction isn't, isn't mm -hmm. defined in the bill. Um, the bill sponsor admitted in a, in a committee hearing that uh, you have to have major decisions disclosed to the parent. Major, the words major decisions aren't defined. And an example was given in a committee that uh, a student having a vegan meal could be a major decision. Mm -hmm. So then if a major decision isn't disclosed to the parent, that's going to subject, like you said, right. the, the district to lawsuits. And I think this bill could be interpreted 67 different ways. And then the way I like to, uh, to draft tight legislation, we've already had two major pieces of legislation struck down by the courts. We had last year's election bill struck down by the court and our platforming bill struck down by the court. So to me, if we're trying to accomplish something, let's define it better. And I don't think we did a good enough job in this bill for that. Yeah, there, there's... Now, this is an issue that I struggle with because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm empathetic to anybody who's going through as, as body dysmorphia or any other sort of uh, thing in which, you know, they're psychologically um, being challenged and on top of it, they're socially often very challenged. There's obviously a higher rate of suicide, depression, all those different things. However, it feels to me like it's moving incredibly fast. There hasn't been much societal conversation there's only been like twitter rage and then there's like no space for conversation it seems like if we even want to start having the sort of debates in which you can frame definitions then people will immediately start attacking each other on you know you're you're this short of a hate crime for for saying well you know is it is it different when somebody says they're a different gender than if they're born that sex. Um, th there are some spaces in which there's no room for that conversation. Um, I'll, I'll give an example for people who talk about, you know, hey, this is non-existent or it's a, it's a solution without a problem. I don't think that any kind of, you know, I don't really like the word grooming. I don't think there's any sort of mass indoctrination program happening. Um, however, but you can look at things like, uh, there's a popular YouTube channel that was just in the news because of a doxing incident called Libs of TikTok. And it's just a curation of TikTok videos that they roll in reels. Um, and many of them are activist teachers. 
uh, who very openly state that they feel it's their job to better inform the children than what their, you know, maybe ignorant seeming parents don't. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of this comes down to, like you said, with the with the pronouns, the identity, and and the bill did take you know the the corrective step in the amendment of saying unless they there, there's good reason to believe you know harm will come to the child, but I think the the premier question that we're having in society right now that that we're not having in a in a, in a useful conversation is whose children are they? Exactly. You know, what I mean, I, I'm a father, my son's my son. And I do not, you know, cede to the state the ability to teach him values, the ability to tell him I'm wrong and this is the, the real way it is. Um, when it comes to questions of such a, you know, significant stature that we don't have, you know, a real good, you know, consensus agreement on, such as gender issues and so forth. So I think parents are very rightfully skeptical of saying, hey, you know, I want these things talked about in school, especially K to three. Um, but at the same time, I, I still think there's a lot of theater being done with it. And I think that's the, the unfortunate nature of our culture war right now is that politics being as difficult as it is, being as expensive as it is, uh, attention being as difficult to garner as it is. Um, and maybe the the algorithms that drive social media and and all kinds of you know culture uh, uh, platforms are geared toward conflict. I feel like there's almost like this unfortunate incentive to play that game, to play into the culture war because it's the only way that you can sort of get the microphone loud enough for people to hear you. Uh, do you? Does it disappoint you sometimes? You to see um, less sort of meaningful attempts to solve problems and more sort of uh, superficial attempts to point score, you know, dunk on the enemy? Well, you look, that's that's politics sometimes and sometimes- But you think it's gotten worse though in re recent years? I don't know. I don't know if it has. I mean, uh, look, both both sides do this. Believe me, they, they try to put us on, the, the Democrats try to put the Republicans yeah, on, no, on no the board. Yeah, no question. And so both sides do it. But um, I, I do think though that Good legislation can come out of it, and with regard, going back to the 1557, which is the parental mm -hmm. rights bill, um, you know, the big another big concern I had was it really called out topics, sexual orientation or, or transgender issues. Why not just sexual sexual issues right, in nature? Right. And and I don't care if you pick K through three, K through six, but but it was very broad after yeah. that. And, so, and there there has been some critiques from from the LGBT community that this seems like an an attempt to define heteronormative as the norm, and that's the only thing we can talk about. So I, I think, again, if you just said sex, I think all parents would become, I, I don't want any kind of yeah, sex exactly. being None of, of that stuff should be know, talked about. In, in K3, the, right. And, and you're 100% right. The parent is the ultimate guide and should be for their children. Not the state, not the school, but the parent. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to continue to have battles over this in the legislature, I guarantee you. Uh, on, on stuff like this, yeah. because the, the parent should have the ultimate right to know and to control their children's education and their children's destiny, because they know better than the state does what what their child should be doing. Yeah, and I, I will, you know, what I was starting to say earlier was I have a son who's a freshman in college right now, and you know, this is a kid that you know graduated from St. Stephen's, um, went out to USC, and if anyone doesn't think that there's a level of 
ideological indoctrination that happens at the collegiate level, they would be shocked to hear some of the things that I hear every day. Um, and again, so at a, at a school like St. Stephen's and my son is far to the left of me, um, you know, and St. Stephen's is probably a school where you had about 70% pro-Trump supporters. He was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, you know, he was always shouted down as you're just a communist and want to give away money and you want to be a socialist and, you know, all that nonsense. And he really looked forward to going to college where he'd hoped that, okay, now I could have more open-minded discussions and high-minded discussions about actual policy and issues and not get mired down in this sort of just, you know, name-calling culture war stuff. And was extremely disappointed. And he said, you know, weeks into it, he said, it's like whiplash, like from going from being called a communist to almost like feeling expressing opinion is going to make me a white nationalist. Um, it's been significant. And I, I started to get kind of concerned about that. And I start, like I often do, I look to experts and I look to read books and open my mind to more things. And one of the things I came across was a book by Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Not, no. Phenomenal. He's a social psychologist and he's left of center and he's loudly ringing the bell. He's a great uh, essay in this month's Atlantic as well. And uh, loudly ringing the bell and saying, hey, we're doing something really wrong here. Um, what's happening at American colleges and universities is not good. And, you know, one of the things that he brought up that was really interesting, was, and it's the first kind of explanation that started to really kind of make a lot of sense, and it was drawing this sort of long, uh, long arc of changes in society in which safetyism, as eternity used, has become more and more prevalent. And the idea that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, when our, when our parents and grandparents uh, were having kids over the last couple of generations, it was typical to get married at 18, have kids by 19 or 20, have three or four kids by the time you're 25, 26, 27 years old. And you were a lot more rough and tumble by nature. You know, you weren't as educated, you weren't as experienced. Um, it was much more common for like me and my siblings to babysit each other at a very young age, to be able to go out and, you know, take your bike and come home whenever it's dark. Uh, and then one of the things that he kind of put together with that was that as parents became older, more experienced, and on par more educated before they became parents, they tended to put a lot more emphasis on the possibilities of things going wrong. And despite the fact that it's significantly safer than it was in the 70s or even the 90s in terms of violent crime, abductions, all kinds of you know maladies in society like that, we're far more inclined to preach safetyism and that this kind of creates a psychological experience for the children that there's something lurking behind every corner and that there's always something to be afraid of and to be on guard against. You know, no, you can't go to the park on your bike by yourself. You know, you might get abducted on the way. Um, no, you can't, you know, just go down to Johnny's house and knock the door. You might, you know, get abducted on the way. Um, there's weirdos out there. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. The, the 24-hour news cycle, the um, rise of social media. Uh, but, you know, he, he said we're, we're teaching children. They're, they're not resilient. We're teaching them they're very fragile. And that's it's simply not true unless we make it so. And, you know, he talked about the way this extends to the university systems. Uh, he gave a, a little speech at the uh, Tampa Theater uh, last month. 
And I just found that part of it fascinating. But the one thing that he left us with during the Q&A, somebody said, I just got my PhD in education. Could you tell me um, where you think I'd be best used? And he said, one place I would stay away from would be education departments at top universities. And he said, I, because, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of crap for this, but I would go so far to say that the top 30 education departments in the United States in terms of ranking of the colleges are probably beyond redemption in terms of that there is no space for debate. There's a narrative. There's one way to think that you're taught while you're there. And if you step out, the it gets harder for you. And, and that was, I guess, the most disappointing thing that my son saw was it was almost like you know, if you take a paper, a final paper to a professor and you have to kind of present it before you do it and everything, there was this kind of, well, I'd like it if you went a little bit more. And the message was, right. hey, if you kind of go in this direction, it's going to be pretty easy and you're going to get a good grade. If you go in this direction, it might be a little bit more difficult. And he said, that, you know, the, the subtle message there is, you know, we're all supposed to say the same thing. And now I'm in a position, do I want to keep my 4.0 or do I want to risk it because this activist professor, you know, thinks that I'm wrong if I express a different opinion. And I really think that's something we have to start wrestling with. I mean, the, the old saying when we went to college was college doesn't teach you what to think. It teaches you how to think. Exactly. I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think so. We had a, a bill that we finally got passed last year, I believe. So in, in Florida's universities and colleges, there is now a requirement to have a survey done of all the students, uh, basically, are, are you able to express your feelings how you want to in debate? And or are you basically told not to? And I thought this was like the easiest bill in the world, mm -hmm. but it garnered a lot of opposition. I, I still don't understand why, but that is Florida law right now, that, uh, that there is a requirement for um, all students to be basically surveyed. Uh, I haven't seen the survey questions, but basically, are you allowed to express yourself freely uh, without being uh, told or indoctrinated uh, at this particular university and and why. Uh, and for me, as a legislator, it's actually one of my very favorite things to do. I think if someone were to listen to the debates we have on the House floor, they're some of the very best debates you'll see anywhere in the country. And I'll give my Democratic colleagues some great credit. They do a great job of expressing their position. We have some great folks, and me included, hopefully, that do it on our, on our side. And that's kind of how you learn about really what bill you're debating and what mm -hmm. bill you're actually voting. And there's some things that I learned in debate that I never thought about, you know, when you read, read the text, but if you're not there to listen to the debate and you're not there to actually participate in the debate, whether it's legislature or otherwise, how are you going to learn? Right. How are you going to learn? Just because you, you hear one side, you're not going to learn really. Uh, and, and I think that stunts your growth and that would stunt my growth as a legislator. Uh, to me, that's very, very important uh, to understand the debate and uh, to see what the other side is coming from. I don't necessarily say I'll agree with it or change my vote, uh, but uh, it's a very important component, not only to what I do, but I think in, in, in education or, or any, anything anyone does uh, in life. Yeah, one of the things when I write an opinion column, the first thing I start with always is trying to argue the other direction. Exactly. And then that's probably something you do as an attorney. Yeah. Uh, I look for sources of people who disagree with me, and then I try to put together their strongest points and make the best argument I can and see how much that convinces me. And like you said, it doesn't often completely change me to the other side, but it opens your eyes to at least parts that 
oh, I can understand the opposition better. And there are scenarios that my ex personal experiences might not have afforded me the opportunity to understand. And maybe we have to open this up or change this a little bit or consider other parts of it because of that. And then even sometimes you're surprised to change your mind completely because again, we're informed by our own experiences and experiences of people close to us that, that we relate to. And often it's those debates from the different sides where you find out, oh, okay, there, there are a lot more experiences than my own. And there are a lot of situations I'm not familiar with. And that can, you know, hopefully if our mind is open, open the opinion. And I don't think there's enough room for that in American colleges and universities right now. There is not. And that's problematic. Very much so. I mean, we, we need more diversity, more thought, more openness, more debate. I think you get a better education that way. No question. Let's move into... Um, so after the 1557 passed, the parental rights and education, then we had the Disney uh, thing that came out of that special session. I, I think that was a little surprising to most people. I wrote a column on that last week, just informing people kind of what that Reedy Creek uh, Improvement District was, how it came to be. Um, you know, but also that seems to be another one where just like 1557, there seemed to be a lot that wasn't considered. So now we're looking at what happens to the debt within that district. What happens to uh, the property taxes also in those counties when, because I was not aware that that Disney already paid the, the millage at the same rate on all the property taxes and in addition did all these other things. Uh, it doesn't sound like either of those counties, well, I think it's Orange and Osceola um, that it lies in, it doesn't sound like they, they do well from this being dissolved. So, and it doesn't sound like it's really uh, uh, bad for Disney. You know, it does in terms of control. Um, obviously, as I pointed out, it's a lot easier uh, to do develop. Anybody who follows, you know, local development knows that it's a long process that you have to go through a lot of votes, a lot of different uh, things, and you never know how it's going to turn out. It's a lot easier when you could just say, hey, I'm going to develop my land. Um, but uh, I'm not sure this was good policy. What do you think of this? So, and I think you did a great job in your, your column, by the oh, way, Dennis. I, I read it. So Reedy Creek is a very old special mm -hmm. district. It was actually uh, created uh, before our constitution was created. And we've been trying to get Disney to come to the table to amend their, their, their charter. Uh, the governor mentioned this. Actually, the bill sponsor mentioned this. They could technically build a nuclear power plant uh, without any need for government permits. What, what basically Reedy Creek allows is total control yeah. over their infrastructure, over their taxing system, uh, with, with even no even for development of regional impact. Exactly. Right. Which exactly. Is meaning like if you're doing something so big that you've got to really consider the impact on the surrounding communities, which, you know, yeah. something as big as Disney could do. As, as simple as a permit. Right. Or, or an inspection. Uh, I'm not saying I, I would assume Disney has the highest standards and probably higher than any local jurisdiction does. They, we have a year. And I'm very hopeful that the, the district won't be dissolved for a year. I'm very hopeful we have, we'll obviously have another legislative session Hopefully now the Disney folks and the governor's office and the speaker and the president are coming together to figure out, because, yeah, there are open questions. What happens to that debt? Uh, uh, when does it get paid off? Uh, there, there's a lot of open questions that we have to get answered before this district gets dissolved, because, frankly, you're right. There are some consequences that we may not have thought all the way through, but I, I'm confident we're going get, to get to a point where, where we, we get those answers and, and hopefully everyone comes to the table and we just resolve all this. Another, uh, probably the preeminent, I don't think anybody was prepared. Uh, I know it, it was very surprising to me. Um, probably the preeminent issue that Florida is dealing with right now is affordable housing. 
And we're going through this. I mean, we just did a report that we have the ninth highest rents in the country. Um, I just got another report. I haven't been able to fully sift through it. I got it yesterday on, according to one study that came out this week, we're now the most expensive place to live in the country in terms of incomes versus housing costs, which is problematic. Uh, our community, one of the things I've always explained to people about why it's very challenging is that to, to have a good market economy for homes is increasingly Sarasota and Manatee counties have been these kind of, and Florida probably has more than most places, but this is certainly something that's been exacerbated by COVID and the, the rise in people telecommuting and being able to live where they don't work. Manatee County and Sarasota have a lot of wealth in the communities that didn't come from the communities, meaning you have a lot of wealthy people who brought their wealth from the Northeast, brought it from other cities, um, whether it be, you know, smaller amounts of wealth of, of, you know, somebody who had a house in Boston that they built in the fifties and, you know, uh, ended up selling it for a million dollars. And it's like, wow, I can get a mansion in Florida for 400,000, you know, 20 years ago, uh, seemed like a great deal. So you had all these people kind of coming down and as a result, those kind of communities can get in these problematic scenarios where there's a lot of demand to live here, limited space and available housing inventory. So they bid that up, but then the communities don't have the industry for the working class to be able to compete with that. And not only do you end up kind of killing your working class, but then you get to a point where just the things you need to service those communities and service that wealth, the, especially considering the advanced age of both of those counties, you need a lot of healthcare workers, especially on the low end, you know, home, home health, uh, assistance, um, stuff like that, you need a lot of, you need teachers, you need firemen, you need police officers, all those normal positions. You need, you know, everything from dental techs to, you know, you name it, car mechanics. And they just simply can't afford to live there. And it used to kind of be like during the last housing boom, the joke in Sarasota was, well, you can't afford to buy a house in Northport if you work there and you can't afford to, uh, uh, or excuse me, you can't afford, yeah, and then you can't afford to live in Sarasota if you work there, so you have to, you know, live in one of these bedroom communities and commute, and that kind of worked for a while, but now there is no bedroom community anymore. There's no place where the house, in fact, recently, Bradenton, I never thought I'd see this in 22 years, Bradenton's housing market is ahead of St. Pete's in the terms of square footage for square footage, or was at least a, a few months ago, and that's really shocking considering that there's a lot more economic opportunity north of the bridge for most people than there is here. Um, what is the legislature, is there conversations happening about this? And I know that there are only so many tools in the government's disposal when it comes to these issues. What are some of the conversations that are happening? So I, I guess we're a victim of our own success. We have a thousand people a day moving to Florida. And the governor mentioned this the other day. The, the, the demand is just so great for people coming here. And our, 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 I think you read the same story I did. The, the median house in Bradenton now, is, or Manatee County, is $500,000. $500,000. I never thought I would see that. Never thought I would see that. And that's unaffordable for most people that live in Manatee County. And that is troubling because we have a lack of affordable housing options all over the place. Now, we can only do so much. Like you mentioned, can we fully fund what's called a, a Sadowski, which is a, a portion of doc stamp uh, money mm -hmm. that we get to help with affordable housing programs like Habitat and some other SHIP programs and, and other programs. Yeah, we, we, we did that this session. Um, I've been trying to, frankly, do legislation that's kind of nibbles around the edges that, that makes government streamlining stuff more, more, more efficiently. Uh, local government's just getting permits approved. Uh, but, but 
we also have issues with infrastructure. We can say build more stuff, but we need more roads. We need right, that, right. that affects our water, that affects our, our schools. So it's a it's a massive problem. I mean, I guess it's a better problem than states that are losing population and, and their home prices, like in Youngstown or Ohio, somewhere where they're having issues that way. But um, it, it's it's almost a, a problem that all the parties have to come together. I know the county commission has been meeting with, with the cities to try mm-hmm. to figure out affordable housing options because there's only so many tools at the toolbox in the state level. Um, I would like to see more focus on building in our higher dense areas where we have our infrastructure, we have our water in place. We, you, you, Dennis, you and I have been here a long time. You know, sprawl is a great thing mm-hmm. because those are the nicer homes, but you got to build roads. And frankly, you do that because the land is available and there's fewer neighbors around you. Uh, doing high dense stuff and infill is tough because you have people around you and they all get noticed for the hearings and they, right, so, right. so, uh, it's a challenging, everybody problem. wants it until it comes exactly. anywhere near them. And I'll, I'll tell you, that's been one of the most frustrating parts of, uh, you know, covering this County has been the lack of affordable housing, but then any time you mention that development plan, you have people showing up saying, exactly. well, it's not my property value. And I, and I think there's a, there's a misnomer and I think we need to start using the term more workforce housing because I think affordable housing has this misnomer that it's somebody on the dole. Uh, it's somebody, you know, who's not working, who's not doing the right things, contributing to society. Um, when in fact, what we really need to focus on, I think we've always kind of been good on the low end. Um, what we've been poor on is saying, what about that person who's not getting any government programs, who's working a full-time job, maybe a job and a half, and the math just doesn't work. So they're contributing to the community. They're fulfilling some vital role. They're, you know, working as an EMT or something like that. I mean, look at what an EMT makes. Exactly. And oh my God, because the other part that you have to look at is not only the housing prices going up, but another interesting uh, data point that I saw a couple of weeks ago, we have the most vacant homes per capita of any state in the country. And the reason for that being is there's so much private equity and hedge funds buying up housing inventory. And often they don't even want to deal with renting it out because they don't want to deal with having tenants, evicting anybody. They want to do it as a buy and hold just so that they could ride the market up a little bit. So you have housing inventory. This started. This is a problem California had a decade ago where they were saying, hey, so they, they did pass some laws, uh, LA County, I think it was, had a vacancy tax where if you were going to keep a place and not put it up, you know, you were going to pay a tax on it that was meant to incentivize you to put it into the market. Um, so that's been a big problem that we've had these investors coming in and, you know, buying up. It's about 20% of the inventory is, is going to large investment uh, funds. And then, but more importantly, there's no model now at these higher prices at $500,000 you can't buy that, let's say, with the traditional like 20% down, 15-year mortgage, and then rent it for what the rest of that mortgage would be. No way. Yep. You know what I mean? It's not even close. And even with the rents being, I think the average is something like 1800 now, uh, even though the rents being that high, it's not even close to be able to pay that mortgage. So there is no like functional model to do good investment properties unless you bought them a long time ago. Uh, so the investment, or excuse me, the rental inventory doesn't seem like it's going to expand that much. Um, do we get to a point where we have to look at maybe legislating against those big institutions or something like that, making it harder? 
I've seen that type of legislation. I'm exceptionally reluctant to start putting restrictions on who can buy and sell things. Me too. But but look, these the, the, top, the top two issues I've heard about are affordable housing and every employer has talked to me they can't find workers. Those mm-hmm. two issues are interconnected. Right. Because folks can't can't afford to live in our area anymore. So, and they're not making the money that they, they think they can or they need, they need to, to live in our community. So, yeah, we have got to figure out a way to get our workforce the ability. And you mentioned it correctly. It's workforce housing. It's, those, it's, the, it's, the, it's the nurses. It's the police officers. It's those that protect us, the people that need us, the people that, frankly, we relied upon the most over the past two years to get us through one of the worst worldwide pandemics in history. Uh, we've got to figure out a way to make sure we have great affordable housing options or our community will continue to be a visitor, touristy. We've already seen it affect the islands and it will continue to push west uh, until our community is is basically a, a touristy type of place. You know, uh, Charlie Kennedy from the school board was in recently and he said it's it's gotten so bad in terms of, you know, with recruiting teachers and so forth that he really wants to start having conversations about does the school district need to build housing inventory in order to have it available for to, to attract teachers here at, at either a you know, set rent or something like that or apartment complexes. Um, that was one of the things that came out of some of those conversations too that was thrown up. Like, do we have to have this company town type thing? Do we have to start encouraging businesses to build these kind of work live spaces or so forth? You know, I've seen a few of those uh, as I've traveled around the country, those we work type of um, situations. Uh, is that going to be a role of it? Are, are institutions, either public and private, maybe going to have to develop their own housing stock in order to put some units aside that they can affect the affordability of and, and that, that aren't going to be market-driven? Obviously, an investor is going to you know try to get whatever the market will bear in rent. Um, so do people with a different incentive uh, that say, hey, well, I'm not just trying to get you know the rich person to come rent my house. I need to get a house for the teacher to rent, are they going to have to create that inventory maybe? I mean, they may have to because uh, they can't find workers. So they're not going to have uh, any folks to service their business or, or in, the, in the district's case, teachers to teach our kids. I don't, I don't want to make predictions because uh, <laughs> who knows what the future looks like. But Florida is just booming right now. And I, I, I would expect a recession at some point, but I don't think it would be nearly as deep as we had uh, 10 or 15 years ago. I still think we're going to have this, this issue. I won't call it a problem, but this issue of people just coming in. Everyone wants to live here. So when is demand going to catch up with supply? I, I don't know when that's going to be. So we're going to have to figure out out-of-the-box types of solutions like the one you're, mm-hmm. you're talking about here uh, to figure out a way to get folks affordable or workforce housing so they can work here. Now, a new dynamic we're also seeing that, that really surprised me. It's not something I really thought I would see in my lifetime even. Uh, I've written a lot on homelessness over the years. And, you know, it was something I got involved with, with my son when he was young as a way to, you know, teach him to give back to the community. And after spending years and years volunteering with the homeless, I started to see a lot of patterns and I started to do more research and I started to better understand the issue. And I started to see that homelessness as an issue isn't really something monolithic that we could talk about. It's really a symptom of a lot of other things. And... In my research of a long three-part piece that I did, uh, it turns out that about 82% of homelessness, and this is pre-COVID, fell into two categories with some overlap, which was addiction and untreated mental illness. And the biggest thing you can go back to is when we got rid of funding the state hospitals. So, you know, throughout, and this was 
bipartisan. It went from Nixon through um, Carter into Reagan, where they kept taking funding that was going to state hospitals, transitioning that and a lot of other kind of funding to block grants and telling communities, hey, you know, we're going to give you more control over your community. We're gonna, you know how to use the money best. So instead of giving you this direct funding, we're going to give you this big block grant and you kind of, you know, plug all these holes with it. Well, it turned out that they were also funding a lot of tax cuts with it and the block grants were not amounting up to what the funding did. So one of the first things that states started doing was defunding their state inpatient hospitals and then transitioning to outpatient services. That's been disastrous. Uh, mostly because there are certain conditions like schizophrenia where if you do not have a very strong support network through family and friends um, that are making sure you're staying on your medications and enduring the, the times that you don't, it's very easy to spiral into the streets if you don't have the ability to, to, to be interned somewhere. Um, the thing that you didn't find, so that's about 82%, what you didn't find very often was the person who just spiraled into homelessness through a few things of bad luck, you know? It happened once in a while, you know, somebody loses a job, they don't have a big family structure, maybe they live several states away, or they're an only child of an only child, and there's just not a lot of family in the picture, and they just kind of, you know, have a, lose a job, maybe have a health issue, and then the transmission goes, next thing you know, they're sleeping in their car. But we've always also been very good at solving that problem. Those were where the success stories came from, where the transitional housing worked. That person wanted to get back into society desperately and was eager to do the things that, that were necessary in those programs. Um, the problem with the other population was, and I, I get always get a lot of things from homeless advocates with this that nobody chooses to be homeless. And it's true in the sense that if you went to any homeless person and said, hey, here's the keys to a rental unit I got, they'd say thanks, right? But if you also said, but you've got to get up tomorrow at eight o'clock and you got to go to work and you got to make the French fries at that fast food place because for whatever reasons you didn't develop the skills or marketability to get a better job and you've got to listen to that guy who's the boss and you've got to do what he tells you to. And then you got to go home and, not use drugs, not get drunk and come back into work tomorrow. Well, that's where it kind of falls apart. And so it's like, well, they don't choose to be homeless, but they kind of choose not to be a productive member of society. And that is your primary block of, of, of homelessness. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we've been so bad at it. However, we're now for the first time really seeing a new kind of homelessness in which we're seeing people slide into homelessness in our own community. We're seeing people, uh, you know, I, I've seen countless on my own social media feed, a lot of people who I, you know, know not just on social media, but I've at least met in person. Hey, you know, our lease just came up. Um, one of them, it was my landlord uh, died. His son inherited the house. The lease came up and he doubled the rent. He said it was 1800 I won 3600 um, That's what the market will get. Sorry, I don't want to tell you. You've been here 10 years. Florida law does not require any meaningful time notice in which when the lease ends and there's no percentage of increase, there's nothing. So you could literally say, you know, a couple of weeks before the person's moving, hey, this is how much it is. If you can't pay that and now you have two weeks to find a place to move into in Manatee County, it's very possible you're going to end up sleeping in your car uh, with your three kids. Um, are there legislative things that we have to look at to sort of protect that population of vulnerable people that slide into homelessness, that, that growing population of them? 
And is something like maybe limiting the amount of rent increase that could happen in from one rent to the next, or uh, or at least increasing the notice to a more reasonable time? I don't know if I'd be in favor of any artificial rent increases that would be capped at certain okay. levels. I know some jurisdictions, maybe New York has tried that. That is an interesting point that you brought up about lack of notice, because that, that could be a huge problem where the lease just ends and then your landlord says, oh, if you want to renew, uh, you know, it's 30% yeah. more. So that, that is an interesting concept, why you couldn't build that into statute that uh, if, if you're able to rent or, or, or renew a, a, a lease that you have to give notice within 60 days or something of mm -hmm. what the new term of what the new uh, rental rate would be. Uh, that could be something that could be, I think, broadly supported. Uh, but uh, we, we got to do something because that, that's the first I've heard of, of our community, a community that I'm born in, that we're now moving into that type of homelessness population where it's folks that just can't afford to live where they are. And that's tragic. And I'm sure it's happening all over our community, all over our state. And it's something that we have, it's obviously tied to housing and uh, our, our lack of housing and housing options in our community. So that's one more uh, reason and one more issue that we have got to try to solve. And it, se it seems like, final comment on that, it seems like we've, one of the things that, that if I could point to anything that's been a problem, the amount of liquidity that we've pumped into markets both administrations, it's something like $6 trillion at this point uh, that came in over COVID in order to float the stock market so that there would be no price correction. That liquidity then gets reinvested and it's chasing return somewhere. And one of the things that I think we've seen is a lot of large institutional investors have looked and seen signs of bubbles and overinflation of asset prices through all these different markets. And I think that's what drove... As, as as crypto had its moment there where it kind of went off the, the grid, um, I think that's what it was. I think it was a lot of people looking and saying, hey, we're holding a lot of blue chip stocks that I don't know if they're worth what, what you know they're trading at. We need to get some exposure to some of these other things to hedge against the possible inflation there. And if there's this you know skyrocketing jump, maybe we need to get some of that. And I kind of feel like once crypto was done, that's when the big institutional, once that took its dip, that's when the big move to institutional housing came. And, that, you know, we talked about that vacancy rate. We talked about the fact that about 20% of the sales are going to uh, institutional buyers. Um, that seems to be a really big problem that houses are kind of being traded as commodities now. And it's in this race to chase a return where everything else is inflated. I know this isn't a state issue, but doesn't the government at some set, at some point, and this has been very bipartisan going, go back Bush, Obama, uh, Trump, Biden, in terms of rescuing the investor class, every time there's going to be price discovery in the market. You know, it's kind of like you win, you win, you lose, you know, you don't really lose. Look, I mean, that the housing stock that we have has gone substantially down in our community. And yeah, it's crazy. These institutional investors come in, whether it's on the island and then they rent them out. And mm -hmm. sometimes we have mayhem on the island sometimes with, with uh, some of our vacation rentals out there and lack of control. But um, maybe we have got to do something. I, I'm just not sold necessarily on, I'm a, by the way, I'm a real estate lawyer by trade. Oh, so, okay. so I don't know if I'm necessarily sold on... Um, person A can't sell to company B, uh, like what, what standards, what restrictions, what, I don't even know if that would be frankly constitutional. Uh, 
what what limitations do they have? Can you own so many homes, or is there a cap? Is there uh, what if it's in Bradenton and Sarasota? Do those two combine? So I think that's that comes with too many complexities. Frankly, frankly, constitutional complexities as well. Um, but certainly, in terms of getting our supply up, I think that's probably the better way to try to accomplish this, um, rather than try to um, artificially create a situation where um, certain groups can't buy certain types but of housing. But I don't know that getting supply up, if you don't have some kind of restrictions on who can buy it. So for example, you just built, because uh, I see this used sometimes when developer comes in and says, hey, you know, I want to build, you know, seven, uh, just recently, 7,700 houses where I have entitlements for 1,200 in Manatee County. Okay. And these are going to be three, $400,000 houses. Um, yes, there seems to be an endless demand of people that will come and say, hey, yeah, I'll come down and buy that house. But that's not doing anything to help the problem that we're talking about. But what it is doing is putting a huge infrastructural burden on the people who already live here and threatening our quality of life. Like, yeah. like the traffic no has gotten ungodly. Unbelievable. In the yes. last you know five years yeah. um, to the point where it's like, this is the first time ever in the 20 years I've been here where I really have to think about like, oh, where's that event at and what time? No doubt. No, I'm not going there Friday at seven. Like I got to get over the bridge or I got to get down to Sarasota. No. I don't think we have a season anymore. No, no, yeah. it doesn't feel like. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, going out to the island used to be, okay, you can go out there in September, October. It's it's always busy now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've lost. So I, I don't see the idea of just doing expanding supply at all uh, under the guise that, hey, we have a housing crisis. So we've just got to approve every, you know, density increase and it seems like that's padding a lot of developers' pockets, but it doesn't seem like it doesn't really seem like it's going to have any positive effect on the thing we're talking about, while having a negative effect on too many of the people that are existing homeowners. No doubt. I mean, growth comes with huge challenges, and frankly, one of our I, I love our single family communities. We have great single family communities, but we need many more multifamily. Uh, communities that have the entities and maybe more uh, mixed-use types of products where so you're not having all the traffic on the roads and maybe some schools nearby. We just haven't done a really great job of planning those types of communities and those types of entities. So these sprawling communities, what, what happens? You get you get on the road, you go to your Target, you go to your grocery store, so you have all these trips on the roads uh, and you suck up uh, traffic and, and that's kind of the, the, the development pattern that we've had mm -hmm. around here. Um, can that be changed? I'm not necessarily saying it can be, but we need more multifamily product that kind of combines all those multimodal nodes to allow people to get off the roads and to live in those communities uh, in an affordable nature. Mm. What are some of the other issues that you're looking at? Uh, what are some of the things on the top of your radar, maybe some issues that you might be looking to bring into the next legislative session and so forth? So workforce development, you know, finding, I had a bill a couple of years ago about trying to get uh, additional nurses uh, into our uh, educated and get get through their degree and and unfortunately that bill didn't make it across the finish line for for a couple of reasons so that's certainly high in my high in my radar. Um, look, we have an enormous amount of revenue coming into the state. So what what do we do with that? Uh, we passed uh, the largest middle class tax cut in the history of Florida this year. How can we get that money back into taxpayers? But also how can we utilize that money for infrastructure, uh, for roads, for sewers, for for schools? Uh, so a lot of uh, what I'll call appropriations requests I've been focused on. Uh, Senator Boyd and I worked on a number of things, including saving Rattlesnake uh, Key from development, which was which was mm -hmm. big this session. Hopefully the governor keeps that in the budget. So uh, for me, it's a lot about bringing resources into the community to make sure that uh, we have uh, 
you know, the good quality of life that we're used to, and God forbid we have a red tide or something like that mm -hmm. that affects us, we have something in place to stop that or at least uh, make sure folks um, are made whole. Excellent. Well, listen, Representative Robinson, I'm grateful for you to come in and talking with us. Uh, thank you for the work that you did um, on this past session, and I wish you the best of luck going forward. I know it's a difficult job that you guys do. A uh, lot of people's voices in your ears, a lot of uh, upset people, a lot, of, a lot of challenges facing our state. So um, I'm sure you guys are uh, getting up early and going to bed late uh, pretty much every day. So thank you very much for coming in. Well, Dennis, thanks for inviting me in. I'm having the time of my life. I, I, I thank the District 71. I'll actually now, because of redistricting, be fully in Manatee County. Yes. So so uh, I'm excited about that and uh, invite me back sometime uh, and we'll do this again. Absolutely. You're going to be the DeSoto Parade tomorrow night? I am. All Wouldn't right. We'll it. see you there. All yeah. right. Take care.